Oh, but now this morning, we'll turn our attention to James. Despite what the last two weeks might have taught us, we're not doing a series in Galatians. We're doing a series in James. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. If you do not have a Bible with you, you should be able to find a Bible underneath a seat in front of you. You If you do not have a copy that you can call your own, we would love for you to just reach under there, take one of those, and have a copy of God's Word that you could read so that you might be able to understand what God has revealed to us in the Scripture. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in James chapter 2, verse 1, though the focus of our time this morning will be on James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. We're going to read the whole chapter because one of the things we'll see is that the two pieces go together, and specifically, if you're the type of person who likes to write in your Bible or mark in your Bible, you'll see that if you circle every time you see the word faith. So we're going to Read the chapter. Every time you see the word of faith, you can circle that and see how James has put these two pieces together here for us. And then let me just finally quickly say, because I couldn't think of a a succinct way to say this in the sermon uh, proper, when we see the words righteousness and justification here in James and faith, it's not the same as it is in the Apostle Paul. For Paul, he's dealing with justification by faith alone. James is wanting us to see that the faith that we have in Christ proves something. It, it's demonstrated, all right? So we're, we're justified when we demonstrate or prove that faith by the way that we live. So that's the conflict. That's not going to be in the sermon. Happy to talk about that more after. I'll be at the tunnel. But now we're going to read James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we ask, Father, as we turn our attention to it, that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts, that you would help us to see what you have revealed decisively in the scripture, that you would give us ears to hear the truth of God as it is proclaimed to us now in the book of James, that you would, Father, not only give us the ability to understand, but that we would leave this place forever changed because we have encountered your word in your Christ. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the mighty friend of sinners. Amen. Have you ever been hesitant to get on a ride in an amusement park? Your brain has plenty of reasons to believe that you will be safe while you are hurtling around in the air. The ride has operated safely up to this point. It has been planned carefully by engineers in accordance with the laws of physics. And the amusement park has an economic interest in the ride being completely safe and you not dying. And yet, you are reluctant to risk your health and your safety. Though you believe it is safe, perhaps for other people, your actions show that you really are not that sure. The same kind of thing happens when it comes to theology and doctrine. We may be tempted to believe that believing the truth of the Bible is something that we can simply be satisfied with, and that is enough. But James tells us that while it is important, it is not everything. So he exhorts us in his letter to be doers of the word so that we do not deceive ourselves. We need to live out the truth, James says, because fruitless faith is not saving faith. So notice first, what makes faith real for James? Look with me again in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Many people today say things like, I am a Christian. I know that I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But does that make their faith real? Are you simply a Christian this morning because you say that you are a Christian? James doesn't think so. So he asks, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, If someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Writing to the church, my brothers, assuming perhaps that there would be people hearing this letter read out loud, just like there are people here today hearing it read and preached, that some of them might have simply said, I have faith, 
and assume that that means they are a believer, what good is it, James inquires? If someone professes to be changed by the gospel, but does not live a life that is changed by the gospel. If there is a claim to faith that is unsupported by any concrete evidence in the life of the person concerned, can that faith save? Many in our culture, perhaps some of you here today, would say yes. They're a believer because they say that they're a believer. But the divorce between a profession of faith and the practice of faith, James implies, is useless. It doesn't do any good for the individual or for those who are around the individual or in our case this morning, for the local church that that individual might be a member of. Which is why James follows his question with a question in verse 14. Can that faith he asks, save him. Careful readers of James' letter notice what he did not ask. He did not ask, can that faith make him happy? Or can that faith bring him fulfillment? Or does that faith give him purpose in life? But rather, can that faith, fruitless faith, save The divorce for James between a profession of faith and the practice of faith not only has practical implications, it is useless, but it has eternal significance. It does not save. And in so doing, James helps us see what we are often so concerned about, a practical faith misunderstands faith altogether. Isn't that what we all want? a practical religion, one that helps us get things done, one that supports us when we're weak and helps us when we're doing well. James says that misses the point altogether. Friends, faith in Christ is not meant to be cathartic. It's not simply to make you feel better about yourself or your life or your circumstances or the lives of those around you, whether they're your family or your friends, your kids or your coworkers. James tells us it is to save. As he says in chapter one, verse 21, your souls. You may not know it this morning or you may know it but not actually believe it, but you need to be saved. You have been made in the image of God and have a soul that will never die and you need to be saved from the wrath of God that God will pour out on sinners because of their sin. And the only way for that to happen, the Bible tells us, is for you to place your faith, your entire trust in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory for the forgiveness of sins. No other season of the year, perhaps maybe Easter, is as equipped as this season of the year to declare that nonstop to us through everything that we sing and everything that we read, reminding us that the sole purpose of Jesus' incarnation was to forgive us of our sins. He came to die so that you might have life because you are a sinner who needs to be saved from your sin. More specifically, this entire season and the Bible teaches us that you need to believe. You need to have faith that Jesus died as a substitute in your place on the cross. 
He died for you. He bore the wrath that you deserve so that if you would place your faith in him, you would be saved from the wrath of God. That you would be forgiven of your many sins. That you would be reconciled into a right relationship with God. That you would be adopted into God's family. That you would be justified by faith. Friends, do you believe that? Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? Does your life show that you believe that? If you have not believed that, you can believe that today. You can believe that right now. The Bible tells us exactly how to believe that by repenting of our sins, turning away from them, and placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, believing in him, you will be saved. And friend, if you're here and you would like to learn more about that, you are in the best place this morning. We would love to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian. Come find me. I'll be standing there at the end of the service. But in the meantime, you'll know that if you have faith, saving faith, James says, if it results in a distinctive life. And that kind of faith is the foundational gift that God gives to everyone. That kind of faith, James says, it demonstrates or it proves that we have been saved. It is the common mark of all Christians that they have professed faith and now they live differently because of that profession of faith. Friends, as a pastor, it is not uncommon for me to hear people say something like, so-and-so just became a Christian, to which I often want to reply, but do not, because I do not want to discourage anybody. We'll see. Can that faith save them? And I'm not trying to be cheeky. I mean that in every way. I'm not trying to discourage people. But we'll see. We'll see if it bears fruit keeping with repentance or if it fizzles out when God requires something of the person that they do not want to do or do not want to give. When singleness in our life is not fulfilling, will we give in to sexual temptation? When marriage is difficult in our life, will we angle for divorce? When money is tight, will we still contribute cheerfully, regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church? the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. When prayers in our life seem to go unanswered, will we still rejoice at another's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear another's burdens and sorrows? When friends leave us, will we still give thanks to God for all of the good things that he's given us? When our family betrays us or mocks us because of our faith in Christ, Will we still gather with the saints and realize that our family transcends bloodlines? When we are busy, will we then forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some? Or will we stir one another up so that we do not neglect the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing? You see, James knows something about faith. And he knows that the practice of faith coupled with a profession of faith, is actually the truly practical faith. That fruitless faith is not saving faith. But practical faith, true religion, manifests itself in obedience when it is uncomfortable, when it is difficult, when it requires more from us than we would ever want to give, when we have to forgive others for their sins against us, 
when we have to turn the other cheek when we have been wrong, when we have to restrain ourselves, when we would rather fly off the handle and let that person have it, when we would rather not give at great cost to ourselves or be inconvenienced in our lives. James knows then that that faith has proved itself to be true faith because fruitless faith is not saving faith at all. But to arrive at a correct definition of faith, like any good preacher, James gives us illustrations, and he gives us four in the text that we have before us today. If you're looking at verses 15 through 26, you'll see that he gives us one of the poor or undressed, hungry Christian brother or sister in verses 15 through 17. And then he gives us one of the believing but troubled demons in verses 18 through 20. And then he gives us Abraham, the friend of God, in verses 21 through 24. And then he gives us Rahab, who welcomed the spies, in verses 25 and 26. And before looking at all of those illustrations and details, there's just a few things that we need to notice about what James has done as he's put this section together for us. First, each of these illustrations ends with a summary statement of what James wants us to learn. Look in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now drop your eyes to verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now drop your eyes to verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now drop your eyes to verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Second, the way James has put these illustrations together, the first two are negative. What faith is not? It's not someone who does not act, and it's not the demons who believe something to be true but are not changed by it. And the second two are positive, what faith is. Abraham, the friend of God. Rahab, who acted. And third, the first and the last illustrations deal with people in relation to us. Hungry people in need. Endangered spies who need relief. And the second and third illustrations deal with the evidence of true faith in relation to God. Peace with God, not terror. A life of obedience as God's friend. That's how James has put the section together. He asks the question up front, how would you know if it's real? Can your faith save? Because that's why you've gathered here, I'm assuming, this morning. Can this faith, the faith that I have, perhaps some of you are here today and you are struggling with unbelief. I am so glad that you are here. The church is a place for people who are wrestling with unbelief. You do not have to have it all figured out to gather with us on Sunday mornings. And we're glad you're here this morning because James is asking that same question. Can that faith save? And he wants you to know that there is a faith that can save. Notice second, words are not enough. Now we're gonna put the illustrations together the way that James does, verses 15 and 17 and 25 and 26. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, 
is dead. Verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith, James tells us, demonstrates that it saves when it acts on behalf of others. Faith demonstrates that it saves when it acts on behalf of others. So he contrasts this armchair humanitarian with the personal risk of Rahab because both illustrate the situation that we are most likely to face, the needs that are immediately presented to us in our own community. Either the people that we see and interact with, somebody who is in poverty and around us and does not have what they need for life, or people who are in or around our immediate community as these spies come to Jericho people who will be within our own fellowship. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, we all get the picture. We've seen the picture. It is a picture that is not as prominent here sometimes in Westchester as it is in West Philadelphia, but it is certainly here, and sometimes we choose to not look at it so we don't see it. Verse 25, Rahab received the messengers and sent them out by another way. People who needed someone were received by someone who had to put herself at great risk. And both prove, or not, the validity of our faith when we're faced with human need. On the one hand, there is a remedy which restricts itself to kind words and good advice. Verse 16, go in peace, be warmed and filled. We pray that you find everything you need, that you would be able to go and get it somewhere else, just not here without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? The obvious answer for anyone reading discerningly is absolutely nothing. This, according to James, speaks not of a sort of faith. It's not even a a half faith. It's not even a limited faith for James. But verse 17, a dead faith. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If you're able to look them in the eye and say, find it somewhere else, your faith is not real. On the other hand, Rahab's sort of faith puts all of life on the line. Her house is on the line. Her resources on the line. Her personal safety is on the line. Her family is on the line. Verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And once again, the obvious answer for careful readers of what James is saying is, yes, she demonstrates her belief by her works. She demonstrates that she has actually believed in the God of Israel by receiving God's people and realizing that her people are God's enemies and therefore her enemies, so she receives God's people so that they might fulfill God's mandate. She receives people at great risk to herself when everything could be taken and everything could be destroyed for being found out to be a traitor. And in so doing, demonstrates her faith, her real belief by her works. 
And this, James tells us, is living faith. Verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And it's easy to lose ourselves in the moment, but James is saying as unity of body and spirit is required for life, so also a unity of faith and works is required for spiritual life. So Alec Matera notes, there is as much necessity that faith and works should be united to constitute true religion as there is that body and soul should be united to constitute a living man. In both instances, James illustrates the practical help that is given to the disenfranchised among us as an example of what real faith is like, not a comprehensive definition of what real faith is. They are examples of what real faith is like. It is not a comprehensive definition of what real faith is. James is not saying, if you care for the poor, you're a Christian, and if you don't care for the poor, you're definitely not a Christian, because it is possible to feed the hungry and care for the poor without any love for God at all. And there are plenty of other ways that we can fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, even while we're feeding the hungry and caring for the poor. But he chooses the poor because the least among us are the least able to pay us back and are therefore the best able to reveal the true motivations of our heart. When we give all to them and have nothing in return to receive, we learn what we really believe. Will we simply wish them well or will we give at great risk to ourselves? But what would James say to the situation that we're in today, particularly in a white-collar community surrounded by so many thousands of people who often have no need for anything, and particularly in the type of community that we're in when the poor often have good social services available to them, and we don't regularly receive, I think, for many of us, foreign spies into our homes? If we're only willing to follow Jesus, I think James would say, when we could have what we would want anyway, then we are not disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. What if Jesus asked you to cut your salary in half in order to serve his church more effectively? You think Stephen and Alexander are taking a a pay raise to move to Japan? To move elsewhere so that you might spread the gospel? You think that they're not leaving behind anybody that they love? To give away a large chunk of your retirement savings because security is an idol in your life. And you're so worried about the future, you don't care about people in the present. Or to sacrifice some of your own peace and convenience to love your neighbor as yourself. To leave your normal social circles particularly this time of year when we gather with all of our social circles, in order to befriend people from another culture living in town who don't have any friends. Open your home to an addict. Perhaps at great risk to yourself. To lend your second car to somebody who does not have a car because they cannot get to work. Or to give more to the local church and be actively involved in the body. Or to demonstrate the glory of God by fostering a child who doesn't have a family at all. To stand up for a particular person or issue 
even if it might cost you your job because you know it's the right thing to do and what's happening to them is wrong. James is immensely practical. And he is telling us we cannot claim a valid, eternally significant relationship with God if we are only willing to follow Jesus if we could have what we want anyway. Friends, some of you have never been wiser than you are right now. And some of you have never been richer than you are right now. And some of you, some of you empty nesters among us, have never had more time than you do right now. And yet for many of us, we've never been less engaged in the context of the local church and in discipleship than we are right now. Are we really to think that God has given us all of this wealth and all of this knowledge and all of this time so that we could spend it on ourselves? So let me ask you, if you're rich in knowledge about the Bible, who are you investing it in? It's good to know things, but who are you helping give it to so that they too might have? And if you're rich in money, and that's incredibly relative because all of us are rich compared to the majority of people around the world. What are you giving it to? Or are you carefully depositing it and making sure that no one sees it? And if you're rich in time, how are you serving the Lord's church with it? And if you're rich in relationships, who are you inviting into your life so that the lonely are not alone? Or are you spending all of it on your own personal spiritual development, comfort, and ease? Faith, James tells us, demonstrates that it saves when it acts on behalf of others. And unless your faith is willing to take risks for the good of others, what good is that faith? It's great that you have stability and that all of your kids made it to college and that you had everything you ever wanted But was that what it was all for? There's got to be more to life than this. Fruitless faith, James says, is not saving faith. Notice third, belief is not enough. Look in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed, or here's our word again throughout the book of James, perfected, he was integrated by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. If words are not enough to show that your faith is saving faith, how else would you show it? Some, James tells us, might suggest something like theological orthodoxy. That's a good answer, James says. Believing the right things. And we want to be really clear at this church. We love knowing what the right things are and trying to believe the right things. 
In fact, so much of this church and our ministry has specialized in trying to believe the right things. Sunday night theology, the academy, members meetings, where we're reminding ourselves what is true, our own confession of faith, or statements like the Athanasian Creed, where we're reminding ourselves of the Trinity earlier, verse by verse, so that we can learn how to read through the Bible, whether it's a narrative passage or a didactic passage. And if you don't know what that means, come on Wednesday nights, we'd love to teach you. We specialize in trying to teach one another those things. But James says, that's not enough. It's good to know the right things and to believe the right things, but it's not enough particularly when we consider the demons. Verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Now look at verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Twice in the same chapter, James is telling us, hey, that's a good thing to do. Love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well, but that's not enough. He's doing the same thing here. You believe that God is well, that's great. You're doing well. That is not enough. Why? Because the demons believe that, and they shudder. It's a terrible translation. It's more, they're terrified. They're unbelievably overwhelmed. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I believe, but I can't be commanded to do anything I don't want to do. Not faith. Demons are, for James, unusually well-placed to believe certain orthodox affirmations with all of their hearts. So he selects just one truth, that there is only one God, the greatest proclamation in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he tells us, they believe this. And if you're like them, to believe that, you're doing well. And yet holding this true belief, the demons continue as demons. And they're not saved at all. And they know nothing of peace with God. And they do not love the one true God whom they confess rightly is one. They know that God is one. And if we read the Gospels, they know that Jesus is the Son of God but it doesn't change anything about their life. Friends, let me ask you, does your right belief change anything for you in your life? Or are you able to assent to the truth with, as James tells us, without truly believing it? How would we know if nothing has changed because of your profession of faith in Christ then nothing has changed, James tells us, and we have not really believed in Christ. True theology, James tells us, leads to trust and peace and friendship with God. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Abraham's true belief was demonstrated in a changed life, manifesting itself in loving obedience to God at great cost to himself, the death of his firstborn. True faith produces results, and in particular, the result of costly obedience to the word of God, regardless of what God is calling us to do. 
Friends, let me ask you, does your faith guide you to do anything that you would not want to do if God did not command you to do it? If not, then either God is not God and he cannot command you to do anything or God is not God and he is not your God. James tells us there is a faith that produces only fear, but there is a faith that produces friendship. And this is how we'll know that we're his friends, by obeying his commands and law. And friends, consider with me, if the demons might hold such a faith and remain in unbelief, then it is possible that we might hold true belief and yet not be believers ourselves. Because fruitless faith is not saving faith. Notice fourth and finally, the life of faith. I want you to look with me again in verse 21. Now look at the last two illustrations together. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way also, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What would James look for as evidence of the reality and living quality of our faith? We have seen how in this very same passage, he clears the ground for us. He tells us that this armchair humanitarian is somebody who does not have real faith. It is not enough to simply say, be warm and be filled. I'm a Christian. I love God Almighty. I believe in the hypostatic union or whatever else. And he also tells us that the demons are fully capable of believing all of the right things and not really believing any of those things because it does not produce any result. That leaves two examples for us, Abraham and Rahab. And the contrast, if we're familiar with the Bible, is immense. Abraham is a major Bible figure. He's all over the place. He is our covenant head. He is teaching us the truth of God's promises. Abraham, but Rahab is this minor participant on and off the biblical stage. Abraham is the father of the faithful, and Rahab is a foreigner. Abraham is the respected, but Rahab is the disreputable. Abraham is the righteous, but Rahab is the lying harlot. Abraham's a man, Rahab is a woman, and in this culture that mattered immensely because they were seen as not having credible testimony. The contrast by James is intended to alert us to the fact that a fully comprehensive statement is being made covering the situation from Abraham to Rahab and back again. Fruitless faith is not saving faith, and the primary work of faith, saving faith, then, are the works of Abraham and Rahab. And they apply to all without exception. What was the work of Abraham? He held nothing back from God, even his own son. God said, I want your son. And Abraham rose early the next morning in prompt obedience. And what was the work of Rahab? She reached out and took into her own care those who were needy and helpless, 
regardless of the cost to herself, even when it put her in danger. The life of faith, brothers and sisters for James, is the life which respects the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is in obedience to him that we now care for the needy and we care for the outsider and we care for the estranged and we care for the disenfranchised and we model our love for God by loving others as ourselves and demonstrate that faith has taken root and is demonstrated for us not only in Abraham and Rahab but is demonstrated for us in the Lord Jesus Christ himself who because of his concern for the needy and helpless emptied himself by adding a human nature to himself And he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant to live like us. And he was obedient for us all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The life of faith is far more than a private transaction of our hearts with God where we're able to say, I'm right with God because I'm right with God and that makes me right with God. It is an active life of continual consecration and obedience that holds nothing back from God and a concern which holds nothing back from others. And the life of faith is for anyone from Abraham to Rahab, for anyone who will believe. And thankfully, what we see when we look at Abraham and Rahab is that it doesn't require sinlessness. Abraham, the mighty man of faith, was a coward and a sinner. And Rahab, the lying prostitute, made it into the people of God and was so highly exalted that she literally is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ and is commended for having a faith of which the world is not worthy in the book of Hebrews. Sinlessness has never been required for the people of God. But obedient faith, trusting faith, loving faith, a faith that works itself out in love for God toward others that is demonstrated when we realize that because we love God, it changes everything about our lives. And the enemies of God, us, are made friends of God. Friends of God like Abraham. If you have your Bible, we're gonna move for just a moment. I want you to turn with me to Second Chronicles. You might not know where Second Chronicles is. Start going left. It's in the Old Testament. If you probably open your Bible to the middle, you're very close. Just, you're getting there. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Verse 7. I hear people still turning, so I'm waiting. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Now, turn to the right and go with me to Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Now remember again what James says in James chapter 2, verse 23, before we turn again. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Three times in the Bible, Abraham is called a friend of God in Chronicles, in Isaiah, and in James. Now notice what Jesus says in John chapter 15. If you have your Bible, turn with me there. Speaking to his disciples and to his people, he says these words, John chapter 15. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. How will you know that? If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Three times in the Bible, Abraham is called a friend of God. And in these verses, there are just as many references to what it means for the people of God to be friends of God. And Jesus says, the distinguishing mark of the people of God, his friends will be their obedience. That it is saving faith because it is not fruitless faith, as James has taught us, because fruitless faith is not saving faith. Friends, if you want to be a friend of God, you will obey God. And the first thing God commands all people everywhere to do is to repent. If there is pride in your life and in your heart that is keeping you from repentance, whether you're an unbeliever here today and you have refused to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, or whether you are a believer here today and you are coddling and protecting sin in your life because you think, I'm either going to get away with it or no one sees or no one cares or it's not that big of a deal, the command is the same. Repent. Repent and be born again or repent and be restored as a believer. And then what God commands all of his children who have repented and trusted in him completely and entirely in their lives is that they would obey, that they would do what God has commanded. And in the book of James, God has been very clear what he has commanded his people to do, that they would be a people who would be doers of the word and not simply hearers only, caring for the outcast, speaking on behalf of God and using their speech in a godly way, that they would be people whose lives are forever changed. The question for us this Advent season, as we're once again celebrating his coming and awaiting his coming, is, is your life actually changed by the gospel? And friends, if it is not, let nothing keep you from coming to the Savior today who changes the lives of all of the people that he so loved. And friends, know that we, when we confess our sins and come to the Savior in repentance, will always be met with the mercy of a loving and a forgiving God. Fruitless faith is not saving faith, but real faith is that faith that manifests itself in obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we ask God that you would help us to believe these truths today, not just assent to them cognitively and say, yes, they're right, but to live in light of them and because of them, that we would be a people who worship more boldly, who pray 
bigger, more courageous, daring prayers that serve at great cost to ourselves, that give of all that we have and all that you've entrusted to us for the good of others, that we would demonstrate the reality of our faith by obedience and changed lives. Father, that this fellowship, this church would be different because of our adherence to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that this community would be forever upended because of those beliefs. God, we ask that you would help us this Advent season to celebrate the coming of Christ and to live in light of the second coming of Christ. People who are preparing for that coming and that judgment that will come by living as your friends, doing what you have commanded us because of what you have done for us in Christ. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand and continue on?